Word Impact, I want to invite you to pull out a Bible with me and turn it to the last book in that Bible, <clears throat> the book of Revelation. Uh, it is the swing, or really the, the end of NFL playoff time. Any NFL fans in this room? Couple, maybe, maybe some fallen, maybe like, I don't really care at all about the NFL playoffs. Well, if you watched this past Sunday, the NFL Super Bowl has been officially set, right? It's going to be the Kansas City Chiefs, fair, fair, versus the San Francisco 49ers. Okay. All right. So this past Sunday, uh, you saw Taylor Swift, I mean, the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, knocked off the Baltimore Ravens. Okay. And then you saw game two on Sunday. The San Francisco 49ers, they actually pulled off, that's the game I want to talk about, because they actually pulled off an absolute miracle. They beat the Detroit Lions, but did anyone watch that that Niners-Lions game by chance? Well, if you did, and I know some of you don't like football, just follow with me. If you did, what you saw was the 49ers pull off the biggest comeback in NFL Conference Championship history. The biggest comeback in conference championship history. They were down, I think it was 24-7 at the half, but somehow they ended up winning that game 34-31 to to go on to the Super Bowl. It was absolutely crazy. But you know, unfortunately for, for me, as crazy as that comeback was this past Sunday, it's actually not the biggest comeback in NFL playoff history. You see, I'm an Atlanta Falcons fan. And in 2017, the Atlanta Falcons played in Super Bowl 51. And I just want to show you one picture from that Super Bowl game. That is the greatest Atlanta quarterback ever. His name is Matt Ryan. And you can tell he is celebrating. You want to know why he's celebrating? Because it's the third quarter in this picture, and his team in the Super Bowl just went up 28 to 3. 28 to 3. Now, I don't know if you don't know anything about football. 28 to 3, that's a pretty big margin to cover in just one more quarter. But let me show you this second picture. That's also the greatest quarterback in Atlanta Falcons history, Matt Ryan, after the game in which they lost in overtime. 34 to 28. The Patriots went on a 31 to 0 run in 17 minutes of playing time. The entire game, like the Falcons looked like they were going to win the Super Bowl. But in the end, they didn't. 28 to 3, that's about as lopsided as you can possibly get in the fourth quarter. And yet Matt Ryan, the Atlanta Falcons, they don't win that game. Instead, Tom Brady and the New England Patriots They won that game, and if I'm just being honest, I'm a diehard Atlanta sports fan. There's a part of me that knew this was going to happen. There was a part of me that expected some colossal collapse of the Falcons in the biggest game of franchise history. I mean, we're the Falcons, they're the Patriots, right? Like, one of these isn't like the other, And so the Patriots win that game. They come back from 28-3 and win that game. And so in the spirit of the NFL playoffs, and with this nightmare of the Falcons still haunting me every Super Bowl season, it made me think about this. You know, just like the Patriots and just like the 49ers who made a huge comeback this past Sunday, you know, if you look at the church in the world today, Right? If, if, you, if you watch the news, if you get on social media, you know, really if you're paying any attention at all, if we're being honest with ourselves, and we should, you know, it really looks like the church is losing. It does not look like the church is winning. Like, at times, it even looks like we're losing about as bad as you can possibly imagine. Like, sometimes it feels we're down 28-3 with two minutes left in the third quarter of the Super Bowl. But you know what? That may be true, and it is true. We may look like we're losing, but the reality is is that this game is not over quite yet. 
Because you see, just like the Patriots and just like the 49ers, we might be down, we might be losing, but the truth of the matter is, is that the church is not out. The church has not died. We may look like we're losing, but when that final whistle blows, or when that final trumpet sounds, we're going to see that in the end, the church comes back, and the church wins. But here's what we don't have in common with Tom Brady and the Patriots. They, they didn't know they were going to win. There was still some doubt. Even as they started to claw back, it's like, well, it might, they might not have enough time here. They might not actually win this game. The church is guaranteed. No matter what it looks like right now, we are guaranteed that we win this thing. It's not that we could win. It's not that we might win. But when the final trumpet sounds, there is one group of people on the face of the earth who is going to be celebrating that day. And it's you and it's me, the church of Jesus Christ. So that's exactly what we're going to see tonight in our text. Revelation chapter 11. We may look like we're losing, but we win in the end. We're going to cover all of Revelation 11 here tonight, but I just want to read that seventh trumpet. To start us off, I want to read that final whistle. What's going to happen? Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19 says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hell. Let's pray. God, may this seventh trumpet bring us an unimaginable amount of joy tonight. God, when we look out of the world, it looks like we're taking some hits, and we are. It looks like we're dying, and we are. It looks like we're hurting, and we are. It looks like we're being persecuted, and we are. But when this trumpet blows, the kingdom of this world is going to become your kingdom. You win, and therefore, we win. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to cover all of of chapter 11 here tonight. And just straight off the get-go, I want to make no mistake about what we just read Right When that seventh trumpet blows, it is the final trumpet. When it sounds, the church wins. It's the end of time. Regulation is over. There's no overtime. The church wins. So that means if you are a part of the church, if you have been rescued by Christ tonight, that means that you win in the end. But right now... Right here on January 31st, 2024, right now it looks like you're not winning. It looks like I'm not winning. It looks like we're not winning. Right now it looks like we are the Patriots in Super Bowl 51. We are the the, the 49ers this past Sunday. It looks like we are losing. That's what it looks like. We look like we're losing. In other words, we look like we are down. We look like we are down bad. We are looking like we're fighting a useless fight, like we're trying to fulfill an impossible mission. So perhaps to many and possibly even to some of us here tonight, this is what it looks like. But what if, what if the Bible actually acknowledges this reality? 
What if the Bible actually acknowledges that this is what the world is going to look like throughout the the age of the church, including right here today? Well, that's exactly what the Bible does. Let's start by reading in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God in the altar and those who worship there. Verse 2, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. It's kind of confusing. We got to remember here in Revelation, and I know some of you I'm going to start just sounding like I'm beating a dead horse here, but we got to remember when we're reading this book of Revelation that this book is full of symbols. It's full of symbols. Literally, nearly everything you read in Revelation is symbolic for something else. Now, I don't want you to mishear me if this is your first time at Impact here tonight. What I'm not saying is that what we're reading in Revelation is not true. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there's a picture or a symbol that we're reading in Revelation, and that picture or that symbol is pointing us to something that is true, a divine truth. And so as we read Revelation here, it is crucial for us to identify what these symbols are and what they are actually symbolizing. And I'll be honest with you, here in chapter 11, this is a difficult task. So you really need to lock in tonight. This is a tough task, but together I know that we're going to be able to do this, okay? So the first picture or the first symbol that we see in this chapter, it comes in verse 1. John is holding a measuring rod. So imagine the apostle John, he's really old at this point. In his hand, he's holding a measuring rod. And the picture is, he's told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. And then he's told, but you don't need to measure the court, the outer court outside of this temple. John, just just leave that out. Don't measure the outer court because, verse 2 says, it has been given over to the nations. And the nations are going to trample the outer part of this temple for 42 months. So a lot of symbolism, right? We have a temple. And it's being measured. And we have an outer court. And it's not being measured. And so that measuring rod, that temple, that outer court, they're all symbols. But what are they symbolizing? That's the question. We'll start with that measuring rod. Right? This measuring rod in verses 1 and 2, it's symbolizing protection. That is what the measuring rod is symbolizing. In other words, to be measured here in chapter 11 means to be protected and maybe that sounds weird to you like how in the world are you pulling that chase like how is a measuring rod symbolizing protection this doesn't make any sense to me but this symbol of of measuring is actually a really easy symbol to identify because the old testament is full of this symbol for example and i'm going to have this on the screen zechariah chapter 1 15 and 16 the bible says this zechariah writes i am exceedingly He's quoting the Lord, with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, catch this. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And so what's the context? What's going on in Zechariah? Well, God is angry with the nations, and he's going to seek to pour out his wrath to destroy the nations. But he says, Jerusalem, where his house is built, he's going to measure Jerusalem because he wants to show mercy to Jerusalem. And so the point here in Zechariah is Jerusalem is being measured. Jerusalem is being protected from God's wrath, from justice, from from God's anger, And that's symbolized by them being measured. So to be measured all throughout the Old Testament means to be protected. So back in Revelation 11, we have this temple and it's being measured. And then we have this outer part of this temple, this outer court to this temple. And it is not being measured. And so what is the symbolism? What's going on? Well, we got the temple in chapter 11. It is being protected. 
Now, we don't know what the, the temple is yet, but it's being protected. In the outer court to that temple, it's not being protected. But it's been given over to the nations to be trampled. So temple protected, outer court not protected. But now we got to figure out, okay, what is the temple? What's the temple that's being protected? What's that symbolizing? What's the outer court? Because it's not being protected, and what is that symbolizing? Well, there's a couple of schools of thought here that, that we could go, but for time's sake, I'm just going to give you mine. And it's this. This temple and this outer court to this temple, they are symbolizing you and me the church of Jesus Christ. Both things symbolizing us, the church. You see, we know in the, in the Old Testament there was a temple. And that temple, if, if you don't know, it's okay, it contained the presence of God. That was the point of the temple. And so, of course, it was a really big deal. But in the New Testament, that temple isn't necessary anymore. It doesn't exist anymore because there's no need for it anymore. There's no temple in the New Testament. Because instead, in the New Testament, that temple is no longer a building, but now that temple has become a people. And it's clear in the New Testament that the church has become now the temple where God's presence now dwells. So in other words, we tonight, the church, not this building, this is just building, but you and me who are followers of Jesus Christ, together, the church, we make up the temple where the Spirit of God now dwells. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, the Bible asks, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. So here in the New Testament, the temple where God dwells, it's not a place anymore, but now it has become a people, and that people is called the church. So if you are a believer here tonight, that means you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, which means inwardly you are the temple of God because the spirit of God dwells, lives within you. Does this make sense? However... That's inward. There's also this outer court, so to speak. Inwardly, we're a temple, but we have this outer shell. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So in a way, there's kind of two parts of you, right? Right? While inwardly, as a believer, you are a temple that cannot perish, that cannot be harmed, that is being protected and sealed by the Holy Spirit. At the same time, outwardly, you are an outer shell that's wasting away, that's being trampled by the nations. And that's the dynamic that's being symbolized in Revelation 11. Inwardly, you're protected because you're the temple of God, but outwardly, you are not protected. And in fact, you've even been given over to the nations to be trampled. So the picture here in verses 1 and 2 is of you and me, the church, being inwardly protected, but at the same time being outwardly persecuted. Inwardly protected, outwardly persecuted. So in other words, you and I as the church, we can't be harmed inwardly. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Nobody can touch your temple where the spirit of God dwells. But outwardly, right now as we speak, we're being trampled over. That's the imagery. You are being ran over by the nations. Not protected, but persecuted. Just just turn on the news, right? This is no secret that the church does not look like it's winning. It looks like we are losing very, very bad. That's because the reality is, as a world, and definitely as a, a nation, we have never been further away from God's word. Right? The church is losing its influence 
in the world and in other places in the world, the church is becoming influenced by the world. Like if, if you could somehow like put a scoreboard up here of, of our score versus the world's score, we would, be, we would be down, right? We would be losing. It would not look too good for the church right now. And we, we talked about this last semester. Right now as we speak, like as we speak, Today, we have lost brothers and sisters across the world because of their faith in Jesus. They have been martyred today. We have churches being closed. We have Christians deconstructing. We have Christ being mocked in every square inch of our culture. We, as a people, are being persecuted. And you're not immune to it. I'm not immune to it. We are being persecuted. The truth is, I know where you live. I know you live in West Kentucky. But if you are living out your faith in Jesus, if you're going to your school and being a light to the gospel, you know it's, it's hard out there. You got people who are against you. You got classmates who just don't like you. You have people who want to persecute you. You know, perhaps we don't want to make too much of this. I know we're not going to school and, and we're being martyred for our faith. I know that. But you know what you might, be? you might be? You might be isolated. You might be made fun of. You might be slandered. And that's because Revelation 11, inwardly you're protected, but outwardly you've been given over to be trampled by the nations. But let's just be honest with ourselves tonight. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of us really don't know anything about this life. Some of us in this room perhaps don't know what it is like to be persecuted for our faith, even if that persecution is very, very minor. And what if I told you, if you've ever wondered why that is, because the Bible's full of it, that you're going to be persecuted if you're a Christian, but you're not being persecuted, and you're wondering, why am I not being persecuted? What if I could tell you that the Bible is actually going to give you a very possible reason tonight you are not being persecuted for your faith in Jesus? And by the way, it has absolutely nothing to do with where you live. That's what people tell you. Well, here in you know, America, Kentucky, we're a Christian nation, so that's why we don't get persecuted. Not true. Instead, nothing to do with where you live, everything to do with something you are actually not doing that you got to start doing. And it's found in verse three. Right, so after this picture of the inward temple, it's being measured, outer court, trampled. Verse three then says this. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So the first picture, right, of a temple being measured and an outer court being trampled. And now that image shifts to two witnesses who are prophesying. Now, just like the temple and the outer court in verses one and two, these two witnesses in verse three, it's still symbolizing the same group of people, you and me, the church. And just in case you're not sure about that, you should be sure about that thanks to verse four. What does that say? It says, these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And so the two witnesses are called the two lampstands. And if you'll remember, I know this is tough, but follow with me. Remember back to Revelation 1. You can even flip there. You'll see that Jesus calls the church a lampstand. And so lampstands lampstands symbolically represent the church in Revelation. And so these two witnesses in verse 3 of chapter 11... They're called two lampstands in verse four, which ought to tell us without a shadow of a doubt that the two witnesses are in fact the church once again. And so just like the temple and just like the outer court, the two witnesses, it's the church, but I want you to pay really close attention to what the church is doing in verse three. This is the key to chapter 11. What is the church doing in verse three? They're prophesying for 1,260 days. 
Now we're going to see that number pick up later in Revelation and we're going to talk about that number, 1,260 days, when it pops up actually next week in chapter 12. But I want to focus in particular on what the church is doing. What does it mean to prophesy? What is a prophet? What does it mean to be a prophet? Well, it's actually really, really simple. In the Old Testament, a prophet was simply someone who represented God here on earth to others and they would communicate God's word to those people. That's what a prophet was. I would represent God, I would go to people and tell them something that God told me, okay? Well, the New Testament gets a little bit more confusing because the New Testament talks about an office of the prophet, prophetic gifts, but even though Revelation is a New Testament book, it's actually going to talk about a prophet the same way the Old Testament talks about a prophet, which is really helpful for us. Okay, so chapter 11 here is talking about prophecy the same way the Old Testament talked about prophecy. It's a person who represents God to others and communicates God's word to those people. Okay, and here's how we know that. Look in verses 5 and 6 with me. The Bible says, if anyone would harm these two witnesses... Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. Here is the key. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have powers over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that verse 6 there, it's clearly alluding to two Old Testament figures. Their names are Elijah and Moses. Right, Elijah was that guy in 1 Kings who, verse 6, shut the sky that no rain may fall. And Moses was that guy in the Old Testament in Exodus who, verse 6, had the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. So Elijah... And Moses. And in the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses were prophets. And so what does that mean? It means they represented God to the people around them. They communicated. They told people what God has said. So that they could either believe that or reject that. So in a way, these two witnesses that are prophesying in Revelation 11, they're Elijah and Moses. But we got to understand that they're not literally Elijah and Moses, Elijah and Moses are the two, witness, two witnesses which are symbolizing the church, the two lampstands. That's who the church has become in the New Testament. So, so here's the point. Don't let me lose you. Here's the point. We, the church, are the ones in the New Testament who now prophesy like Elijah and Moses, right? We, the church, in the New Testament, are the ones who now represent God everywhere we go here on earth. In our schools, in our homes, in our locker rooms, we are the ones who communicate to others what God's word says and they have the choice to believe or disbelieve. And so the picture here in verses three through six is that the church has become prophets like Elijah and Moses. Our job is to prophesy, or we could say our job is to witness about Christ and about his gospel to the world around us. So that brings us back to this question, this crucial question. Why are some of us in this room who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ not being persecuted? Why are some of our lives so easy and so comfortable? And I'll tell you why. It has nothing to do with where you live. It has everything to do with something you're not doing. It's because you aren't prophesying. The reason you don't get persecuted in your schools, in your locker rooms, in your classrooms, is because you don't prophesy about Christ. You don't proclaim the gospel. You don't tell your friends and your teammates and your family members who God is, what he has said, and what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. 
You don't share the good news to your family. You don't proclaim the gospel to your friends. You don't go to school, walk up to classmates and teammates, and tell them about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See this connection in Revelation 11. There is a reason the church is being persecuted. It's not just because we're the church and people don't like us. The reason the church is persecuted is because we have a mission. And that mission is to be prophets, to prophesy like Elijah and Moses, to witness about Christ. So that's the point. We're persecuted because we prophesy. We're persecuted because we're doing what we've been called to do, being who we've been called to be. And so the reality is, I promise you, I promise you, if you take sharing the gospel seriously and you go to school and you're a witness to Christ, to all the people around you, I don't care what school you go to, you will face pushback and you will be persecuted. Now in this area of the world, praise God, you won't be persecuted to your death. But as you live out your faith in Jesus, as you proclaim his word to the people around you, you are going to face persecution at least to a degree. And now I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking right now, that's exactly right, Chase. Bingo. That is exactly why I don't share the gospel. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be isolated. I don't want to be made fun of. I don't want to be picked on. I don't want to be persecuted. But if that's you, and we we are all tempted to be that person, me included, I want you to notice that this prophesying, it's not an option for the two witnesses. This isn't given as, as like a choice. It's just who they are. It's just who Moses was. It's just who Elijah was. It's just who these Old Testament prophets were. It was their job. It was their responsibility. It defined who they were. Elijah and Moses had the responsibility to be prophets. And you and I as the church, we have the responsibility to be prophets. Which means to represent God here on earth. To tell people what he has said through his word. And to share the gospel with them. Right? In other words, the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, it's not some optional add-on to like the special Christian. He or she is supposed to do it. Everyone else doesn't. No, making disciples is a part of being a disciple. Right? Being a witness about Christ is kind of what it means to be in Christ. It's just not something we might do. It's not, it's not something we get the choice to do. It's just something we do. We can't not do it because we love him too much to not talk about him. And so listen, I'm just going to lay it on the table. If you're not being persecuted, perhaps it's not, it's not because of where you live. It's because of something you're not doing. You're not doing what you've been called to do, which is prophesy, proclaim the good news to others. But hear me, this isn't optional. It is what you do. It's who you are. We're disciples of Jesus and we go out and we make disciples of Jesus, which first and foremost starts in our own schools and in our own homes and in our own locker rooms. And if we're not doing this, tonight we have to commit to start doing this. So let me just remind you of our goal in 2024. We got a lot more sermon to preach here, but can I be honest with you? Here's our goal. Five students come to Christ from each represented school in this ministry. We have 10 schools listed on the screen. That's 50 people, five people from each one of those schools coming to Christ represented here tonight. Now, not to put pressure on you guys, today is January 31st, a full month of 2024 gone in a way. And I'm just going to be honest, as of right now, we have made no progress, zero, towards this goal. Like all 10 of those schools, spoiler alert, everyone is still at zero. And that's possibly because that in January, 
there wasn't a whole lot of prophesying going on. There wasn't a whole lot of going to school and proclaiming the gospel going on. A whole lot of going to my teammates and telling them that Jesus loves them and he laid his life down to save them going on. And, and maybe the reason this is so is because right now, even, even right now in the second, you are expecting this goal to be met. You want it to be met. But it's possible you think it's going to be met because of the person sitting next to you. Like, this is how this is going to be met. This person next to me, they go to school with me, they're going to meet this goal. Like, I've seen them do their thing. Like, they can really articulate the gospel. They really have a way with words. Yeah, we're going to meet this goal. It's because of this guy. Or it's because of this girl. It's not going to be because of me. you got to get this in your head tonight. This is not their goal. This is our goal. This is your goal. And if it's going to be met... Every single person in this room who is a follower of Jesus Christ has to become what the church is, which is people who prophesy, people who proclaim the good news. So let me just ask, not to condemn us, but in the month of January, how many of us went to school and regularly shared the gospel? How many of us witnessed about Christ this month? I want this goal to be met, and I think you do too. But if we're going to meet it, each and every one of us has to start doing what we've been called to do, which is proclaim the good news of Christ's death and resurrection in our context to our friends, our classmates, and our teammates. Now, Does that mean that this is going to be easy? Absolutely not. Right? For for most of you, sharing the gospel is not going to come easy whatsoever. Me included. It can be very, very difficult sometimes. And maybe the hardest part is if you remember back to chapter 9. The good news that you're proclaiming to unbelievers, we can think what we want about them. The Bible says they don't want to hear it because they have hard hearts. And these hard hearts often lead these people in some way or another to persecute us, to trample us. And sometimes that persecution can be really, really difficult. Read with me in verses 7 through 10. When the two witnesses finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. That is intense. The church laying lifeless in the middle of the street because the mounted troops of chapter 9 kill a third of mankind. That's the picture here. As the church does what the church does, as we prophesy, Satan and his army is going to conquer us. And they will symbolically, for some of us, and not symbolically for others of us, kill us. And as a result, we, the church, lay lifeless in the middle of the street. And as we lay there, these unbelieving mounted troops stand over our dead bodies. Here's the picture. And they rejoice. They make merry. They exchange presents. They're high-fiving. They're continuing, while we lay lifeless, continuing to mock us, continuing to slander us, continuing to persecute us. So let me just ask you, this is the picture, you're dead in the street, unbelievers laughing over your dead body. Does this picture look like you in any way have won or are winning or could possibly win? No, the point, the first half of chapter 11, the whole point is you look like you're losing. You look like you're losing bad. Verses 7 through 10 literally look like the definition of defeat. I don't know if it could work. 
I don't, I don't know if it could possibly look worse. It looks 28 to 3 for the church right now. It, it looks like we are getting it handed to us. We are dead in the middle of the field and our enemies standing over us, taunting us, laughing at us. I mean, we look like, we look like the Patriots in the 2017 Super Bowl. But you watch, you watch that game, right? I told you about it. I mean, as a Falcons fan, I hated it, and I hate to even make this illustration. It feels icky, but, but the Patriots, they didn't give up. I showed you earlier a picture of Matt Ryan, and there on the screen you can see a, a picture of New England's quarterback. You probably know him. His name is Tom Brady. And I want you to listen. This is the exact same game, exact same Super Bowl, Super Bowl 51. With his team down, you can see in the top left corner of your screen, Tom Brady's team down, 28 to three in the third quarter. This is him. Down 25 points. Now, like him or hate him, that's not the point. Look at this picture and you tell me, does it look to you like Tom Brady has given up? Does it look to you like Tom Brady has thrown in his towel, like, hey, 28 to three, great season, we're runners up, like, we'll get him next year. Like, say what you want about this man, but... In a time when he clearly could have given up, this guy kept fighting and he kept playing. And ultimately, he led his team to the most unbelievable comeback in sports history. And so here's the point. Here's the point for you and me. Despite being down, Tom Brady kept playing. And just like that, we as the church right now, we symbolically are down. We look down. We look like we are losing as bad as you can possibly be losing. We're being trampled. We're being persecuted. We're laying dead in the street. But here's the point. We don't stop playing. We don't stop playing the game. We don't stop doing what we've been called to do. No matter what the scoreboard looks like right now, we keep persevering, which means we never give up, right? And what do we keep persevering in? Well, we persevere in doing the thing that is actually causing our persecution. We keep prophesying. We keep preaching the gospel. It doesn't matter that we're dead in the street. It doesn't matter that we're being mocked. It doesn't matter that we're being trampled. We keep persevering in prophesying, in sharing the gospel. We keep telling people about Jesus no matter what. Read with me verses 11 and 12. I, I love these verses. This comes immediately after that picture of unbelievers standing over the church's dead body in the street. Immediately. This is what happens. We don't stay dead. Watch this. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Now many people think this is referring to either two things. The rapture or the resurrection of the dead, when Christ returns, how we will raise from the dead. But here's a shocker. If you know me well, I think those are both incorrect. That's not what's happening here. Neither one. Instead, I believe this picture here of the church getting up, of the church going into heaven, is of the church persevering in proclaiming the gospel until the very end, until Christ calls us home. In other words, despite the persecution, despite the backlash, until the day Jesus calls us home, until he says in verse 12, Chase, come up here, the church is going to continue to proclaim the gospel. We're going to continue to fulfill the Great Commission until it has been fulfilled. And here's why I believe that. To me, there is no way verse 12 can possibly be pointing back to the resurrection of the dead which happens when Jesus comes back, and that's because of verse 13. And I'll just say this, I've said it about a lot of verses, my favorite verse in the Bible. Look with me at verse 13. Immediately after the voice from heaven says, come up here, the very next verse says this. This is so good. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, 
and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and here's the good part. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Do you get that, right? Like, please tell me you got that. This is perhaps one of the best verses in the entire Bible, one of the most optimistic verses in the entire Bible. Verse 13 tells me this. Even though we're being persecuted, even though this persecution is going to get severe, even though some of us are going to be martyred, when we keep proclaiming the gospel, when we keep making disciples of all nations, when we don't stop, when we don't give up, no matter what the scoreboard says, when we keep playing the game, if we do this, look at verse 13. 7,000 people killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The most exciting verse in the entire Bible just happened. The church persecuted, but through the persecution, we persevere. And what happens? Our family, our friends, the nations give glory to God. As we get persecuted and lay dead on our backs, because of our perseverance, many people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. One-tenth of the city falls. Nine-tenths of the city, the rest are terrified and give glory to God. You get it, right? This is salvation. They're freely, voluntarily, willingly giving glory to God. So the picture is that even though the nations are standing over our dead bodies, if you persevere to the end, if you continue to proclaim the gospel to your friends and to your family members, as they see your faith lived out, and as they hear about the faith proclaimed, over time, what happens? God begins to soften their hearts. And instead of worshiping demons and idols, like in chapter nine, for the first time in their life, your unbelieving friends start giving glory to the God of heaven. This cannot be the resurrection of the dead because on that day, there's not gonna be an opportunity to repent, believe, and give God glory. No, verse 12 is the church persevering in evangelism to the very end. And verse 13, it gives me goosebumps because it is our perseverance paying off. Why should you prophesy even though persecution will come? I'll tell you why. It's because many people, including the people closest to you, very well likely could come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point. Through our perseverance in proclaiming the good news, many people will be saved. Now, if you just lay dead in the street and you stay dead, say, I ain't going to get persecuted like that no more. I ain't going to be isolated. I'm not going to be made fun of. I'm not going to have a weird conversation with my cousin. Verse 13 doesn't exist in that world. But because you're going to persevere, many people will be saved. We've already seen in Revelation, there's going to be a great multitude in heaven, right? I want you to connect these dots with me. Do you know why there's going to be a great multitude in heaven? Why is there going to be a great multitude from all nations standing around the throne in heaven? It's because of, church, it's because of chapter 11. The church of Jesus Christ is going to persevere in our evangelism. We are going to persevere. We're going to continue to tell people about Jesus. Can I just, if this chapter does not fire you up to go to school tomorrow and tell someone, anyone who will listen to you about the gospel, I'm going to give up. I don't know how to get you excited about evangelism than the possibility of your friends and family coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ if you just keep on. If you just keep on, if you just keep persevering, not only might they join our side, but they're going to join Christ's side. They're going to join the winning side. So we might look like we're losing, but 
You know how this thing ends, right? You, you know how the Super Bowl ended, right? The Falcons winning 28-3. But when the final whistle blew, the Patriots were the ones celebrating. And just like that, the church may look like we're losing right now, but when this final trumpet blows, we're the ones who are going to be celebrating. And if you don't believe me, we've read it once. We started our night like this. We're going to end our night by reading the seventh and final trumpet. Here's what we have to look forward to. As we persevere, we wait for this final trumpet. Which says this, Revelation 11, 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Christ has come back, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations rage. That's what's happening in verse 11. The nations are raging, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hell. You see, right now, the church looks like we're losing. But the scoreboard doesn't tell the whole story. Don't pay attention to the scoreboard. You just keep playing. You just keep persevering. You just keep prophesying because you know the final score. We win in the end. Why? Because Christ has already won. See, the reality is, is we're playing in a game that's already been decided. And spoiler alert, we win in the end. So go make disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would absolutely pierce us tonight. And that we would start doing what you have called us to do, which is go to the nations, go to our schools, go to our homes. And tell others about your gospel. God, may there be a sense of urgency created here tonight. That we would reach our 2024 evangelism goal. And that these students would go to their schools. And they would prophesy. And they would persevere in that prophesying. And as a result, many people would be saved. In Christ's name we pray.